I've got a unique story to tell you about deer sometime when you want it. How about now? Well, okay. Hi. Welcome to Vermont Untapped, a podcast from the Vermont Folklife Center that explores the state through the voices of its own residents. I'm Mary Wesley. In this episode, we explore deer hunting from an insider's point of view. You'll hear excerpts drawn from interviews with hunters around the state, collected by folklorist Greg Shero and audio producer Erica Heilman. These interviews and many more were gathered for a statewide research project and edited into a 12-part audio documentary called Deer Stories. I want to tell you a little more about this project. When Greg and Erica had completed the interview process and edited the hours and hours of audio they'd collected down to three- and four-minute clips, they had one more step before they released the stories to the public. They held a dinner at Erica's house for all the hunters involved. They played the edited stories for the group and asked them for feedback, asked them, did we get it right? Erica remembers. My memory is that, that um, you know, when they showed up, they were kind of wondering what was going on. Because I think even when you get interviewed and you're kind of told what it's for, I don't think anybody really understands that it's going to become a radio story. I think that's that's always a surprise. So suddenly, so there were, a, you know, the whole room full of hunters and we were sitting around kind of awkwardly and, and we started to play the stories and... Um, I just remember it was, you know, cathartic. How, what could be more fun than sitting around with a room full of people who are expert in something, hearing stories by them about what they're expert in and what they're really passionate about. So it was just a really kind of special night. I think that, that deer hunters know deer and love deer better than almost anybody. And I think that that's a, that comes through really nicely in this series. Here are the hunters. When he used to leave for camp, I mean, I'd run downstairs and four and five years old, I'd get into like a pair of his boots and his hunting coats. Like I couldn't wait until I could go with him, you know. Everybody did it. It was was something everybody did. Come November, everything shut down. You couldn't even get your carburetor fixed for crying out loud on first opening day of deer hunting. There was no garages open. They were hunting. (laughs) Almost basically either you're bred into it or you're not. I mean, with Heidi's kids, you know, I I keep trying to get them to go to the NRA course and take that so you can go hunting with me and stuff. They're like, no. And I'm like, well, do you want to go out and shoot my rifle with me? No. So I have a hard time with it. You know, I'm trying to raise my kids. They have, you know, to give them the choice. You know, but it's just like, Jesus, you know, there's six kids in this house. Isn't one of them going to be a hunter, for Christ's sakes? (laughs) Who am I going to give my rifles to? (laughs) The biggest percentage of the population that lives here in Vermont today are probably not deer hunters. And deer hunting is not something that you can learn by listening to a tape or reading a book. It's something that you learn by hunting with a hunter that really knows what he's doing. And you learn by starting out this high as a kid. And you learn by watching and observing. I mean, we used to go in the summertime and uh, sit beside the road with field glasses. My dad and I, my brother, my mother. And we'd watch deer. Late in the afternoon, in the early evening, we'd watch deer. My dad would say, there's, there's something over there in the woods behind them deer. And I said to my dad, how do you know? He said, watch his ears. He keeps flicking his ears and he keeps looking back. So you learn by watching. 
And I think it's sad that kids don't know how to hunt from their parents. That very first year, he passed away. I carried my radio that him and I hunted. We had handheld radios. And uh, he weren't on the other end. But I hunted with his rifle and our radios and, and did this pretty much the same thing, but by myself. I had other radios of the ones we use now and different frequencies, and, and I didn't take them. I don't know why I had it. I just I guess it was a security blanket or bring that along or something. I don't know what it was, but I ended up getting a, getting a deer that year with his rifle, and that meant quite a little bit. You know, he taught me everything he knew about hunting. He's always with me. He's been with me on quite a few hunts. So... Last year, Hannah and I decided we were, we were going to go out together. And so about a week before hunting season, we went out, scouted around and, you know, found actual places where we wanted to sit. You want to kind of get in there and make sure you can see around. You don't want to be doing a lot of making a lot of noise that opening morning. And of course, opening morning, crunchy, crunchy, you know, leaves, no, no coating of snow. I think there was a light dusting of snow, but it was very noisy. And so Hannah and I, we, we got out there and we got up to the top of the ridge. We were going to go get into our, our spots. And so we got situated and, you know, I kept thinking I was hearing things kind of in a couple different directions. Next thing I know, I hear this. It, it sounded like a couple of horses coming down a, a trail through the woods. And it was a predominant trail something that it was used a lot by wildlife in the area and um, they come down doe runs out into the field right in front of me and the buck comes flying out runs past her stops and so I get off a shot I see that it's a legal deer because it had to be more than a than a spike horn this was ended up being a five point buck so I got a, a nice shot at it. It was one shot, killing shot, and very clean. Uh, didn't run off very far. Went up and located where the deer was. Went up and got Hannah um, out of her stand. And uh, she could hear all this, but um, she stayed put, which was safe for her to, to do. And, and so I'm waiting for the other guys in the area. I knew my husband was off hunting, actually quite a ways away off on a, the other side of the logging road, but I figured he probably would have heard. And I shot and waiting for these, these fellas to come, you know, give us a hand, us, us girls a hand. No one shows up. Well, guess we've got to take care of this on our own. So we dragged it out of the woods up mm -hmm. to the house, got it in the back of the pickup and uh, brought it to camp and, you know, was cleaning it out before anybody <laughs> ended up showing up. And so they were all quite surprised that uh, we, were, we, were, we were lounging at camp when <laughs> with our deer all done for the season. And most people, when with my ex experience, in my experience, the men, they're, okay, you, you shot the deer, we'll give you that. But, you know, Joe, your husband or boyfriend or whoever's probably was with you, it had something to do with the fact that they were with you. That's the general feeling that I get from people. Uh, they don't tend to take you seriously. So this was a real triumph for, for Hannah and I because there, there were no men in the area to help with anything. <laughs> 
So um, they, they had a lot of work ahead of them. They were scrambling the rest of the season. <laughs> I was telling you, I was living over here, and uh, I was a game warden, deputy game warden. Well, somebody called and reported a deer being born up, west, up on West Hill, and had fallen into the, the deer that was born, fell into a stream. Well, I went up after, and she was practically dead. I mean, she couldn't, she was in the water, and she, she couldn't even lift the head up. She was just practically dead. I got some milk, put a little whiskey into it, and gave it to her, and I brought her too. Well, I was marked as her mother by being brought to, and I was the first thing she saw. I, I raised her, give her milk, and cut brush for her, and give her a little grain, and uh, I kept her for five years. Uh, I had to build a pen out there for her, and I used to let her out of the pen and run for the, for the porch over here, and she'd beat me to the porch, jump up on the porch, and come into the house, and she'd go into the kitchen where my wife was going to give her a cookie or something. Wherever I went, I don't care where it was, anywhere I went, she was right with me. I'd go up street with her, go into the store, she'd follow me right into the store, the post office, hardware, anywhere I went, she was there. You know, people would see you come into the store with a deer following you, they'd think, what gives, you know. I'd uh, go up street on a Sunday, Kids come down, running down from the church, screaming and hollering. I'd let them play with her for maybe 10, 15 minutes. I'd just say, come on, lady. I'd head for home, and she was right with me. Then, after five years, uh, people had been trying to raise a cub bear and, or something and got mauled by it. So the Fish and Game Department, they passed a law making it illegal for, to keep any wild animal. Well, being a game warden, I couldn't pinch somebody for raising a coon while I had a wild animal myself. So I had to get rid of her. I took her way up in Bingo to an orchard up there where there was a lot of good feed and with the help of my dad, who finally got away from her. Of course, I never knew what happened to her, but uh, she was in good feed, and whether she made it through the winter or not, of course, I didn't know because I, well, I didn't want to know what happened to her because she was my pal. Yeah. <laughs> You've been listening to Vermonters Mary Van Vechten, Prentice Durnell, Joanne Ward, Phil Brown, Gail and Hannah Streeter, and Cleo Johnson. A big thanks to Erica Heilman for talking with us as we were putting this episode together. Erica is a longtime friend and collaborator with the Folklife Center. It was really interesting to hear her reflect on the work she's done with us. I do think that one of the special things about the Vermont Folklife Center is that it is a real principle and value there that people feel well represented in anything that's done with these interviews. And so unlike reporters and unlike um, 
radio producers, the Folk Life Center goes back to um, people to kind of vet these things before they go out and they go public. That was really terrifying for me when I first started working with the Folk Life Center because I'd never done that with anybody. It was really kind of understood that when you're done, you're done, or when you have the tape and they've signed a release, that's it. I think it just reflects that the Folk Life Center really wants to get it right in terms of how people are represented and that there it does encourage this this back and forth between, you know, um, interviewer and interviewee and that that conversation continues. This kind of collaboration with the people we encounter in our work is really important to us here at the Vermont Folk Life Center. I want to say a big thanks to all the hunters who shared their stories through this project. We hope you've enjoyed the first two episodes of Vermont Untapped. We're so excited to be sharing our work in this new way. From here on out, we'll be releasing episodes monthly. If you miss us between shows, please follow the Vermont Folk Life Center on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can sign up for our newsletter at vtfolklife.org. The show notes for this and other episodes are available at vtfolklife.org untapped, where you can listen to the full Dear Stories series. Our theme music, Variations on Green Mountain Petronella, was performed by Dave Hoy. Our logo was designed by Kat Rizos. Vermont Untapped is produced by Erica Ferjuelli and me, Mary Wesley. <laughs> <laughs>